BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Weather satellites in Earth's orbit supply vital information to meteorologists across the globe. Did you know that over 90% of the data that is used in weather forecast models comes from satellites? Our next guest has spent plenty of time working on improving weather satellites and the information they obtain. From the heart of hurricane season to the middle of the winter, satellites are an integral part of keeping people safe. Today on Weather Geeks, we are joined by Tim Walsh, Acting Director of the Joint Polar Satellite System Program at NOAA. Tim, thank you for joining us on Weather Geeks. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Shepard. It's really a, a pleasure to be here today. I, I, as I mentioned to you earlier, I'm a big fan of the podcast. I, I, I love geeking out on various things, whether it's uh, uh, weather or just engineering in general. So well, looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, well, we're happy to have you and we love people that like to geek out with us. So uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and read some of your background. Normally I ask, how'd you become a weather geek? But you're an engineer that are, that's now working in the weather field. So I should ask how you became an engineer geeking out with us in weather. But before I get to that, uh, Tim's background, he has a BA in electrical and electronics engineering from Duke University and a master's in a similar field from Johns Hopkins University. He's currently, as of the taping, the interim director of the Joint Polar Satellite System Program, commonly referred to in our field as JPSS. Uh, who knows, by the time this airs, he actually may officially be the director. I, I think that we all expect that to happen. Uh, over a 26 years career in NOAA, and he also worked on the Gozar flight program. And as someone who spent the uh, first 12 years of my career at NASA as a research meteorologist, I know that the satellite meteorology world is a community of both meteorologists, engineers, and computer experts and so forth. So, Tim, just tell us how you first got into the field of weather from an engineering perspective. Absolutely. Uh, and my background goes... I'm going to date myself a bit here, but uh, in, in 1969, when Neil Armstrong stepped off onto the lunar surface, I was four. And I remember that day vividly because it was my first television memory. Um, and I happened to break a mirror. And I remember it being kind of, it was kind of daunting to know that I had seven years of bad luck at age four. But I, I do remember at that time saying, I really want to do something related to space. Um, so I think during my, my childhood, I started building a lot of rockets. I launched a lot of things into really, really low Earth orbit um, over my neighborhood, and including, um, in fact, a camera, a, a 110 speed camera that you may remember back in the day, we had those uh, that speed camera and, and took, so took some pictures of my neighborhood. And I figured this would be something I really wanted to do. So I went to college. I kind of knew I wanted to be an, uh, an engineer of some sort. I, I think of electrical and mechanical as somewhat the liberal arts of engineering because it allows you to have a, a wide breadth of, of areas. And, and so when I came out of college, I was working uh, in the private sector for um, radar, electronic warfare, and other things in the Baltimore area. And I was on a rotational program that my last rotation was at NASA Goddard. Uh, where you worked, and and it was just such a great uh, you know, petri dish of of engineers and scientists that were really doing good work. And so 
I ended up staying there um, after my company actually left and eventually worked on some launch teams for this, this group called NOAA, who I really didn't know very well. Um, I was a NASA contractor and, and I really got to love the mission, uh, the, the excitement of the people doing the mission. But more importantly, I was going from satellites that I could have a hard time describing to my mom and my family to a satellite that everyone talks about, right? You know, everyone sees the GOES data that they see on the weather forecasts or, or their weather channel at the time. Uh, a lot of people looked at the nightly news. So that's how I got involved. And so I, my time started out in operations. I was on launch teams and then I got to the design side. Um, and I think I, I really have to mention that the NOAA NASA partnership here at Goddard probably goes back 40 years. And so I, I think it's been a, a great example of how these two groups uh, communicate and work together. Indeed. I mean, I, I, even though I didn't work specifically on GOES during my time at NASA Goddard, certainly uh, new people like you maybe even come and we may have crossed. I think we did cross paths perhaps. But I'm sure we have. Yeah, yes. Dennis Chesters was the GOES project scientist who I used to work quite a bit with at uh, Goddard on the science side, which now I want to sort of geek out. We, we're not going to launch in the full geek out mode yet, but explain to our listeners, uh, Tim, and we have a, a, a wider array of listeners from people like us to people that just casually listen in. Give us a little one-on-one on the difference between the GOES program, which is sort of the geosynchronous weather satellite program, and the sort of joint polar satellite system or JPSS program. Because, I mean, I, I want people to understand the differences in why we use geosynchronous and low Earth orbiting polar orbiters. Absolutely. In, in weather forecasting and weather observations in general, there are two really important orbits, one of which uh, the geo, you can call it geosynchronous or geostationary uh, orbit um, that the GOES satellite uses. GOES stands for Geostationary Operational Environmental Satellite. And, and that's 22,300 miles away or about 36,000 kilometers. And, and at that uh, altitude, it is orbiting at exactly the, the Earth's orbital rate. And so if you put the satellite right over the equator um, from the ground, it looks like it's not moving. And so that's a really valuable uh, trait to have when you're on orbit looking at the Earth, because um, you can see with the two satellites we have in orbit for GOES, we have one perched over the East Coast and one perched over the West Coast at 75 and 137 degrees longitude. Um, and we can see literally from the coast of Africa all the way out to New Zealand um, in real time. And as, as you may know, we, we image every 10 minutes and we can go as fast as every 30 seconds for certain areas. It just gives mind blowing you know, like HD TV quality uh, video from, from, from that high up. And so that's, value, that's really valuable for now casting and severe weather um, observations. But on the, especially on the, this time of year with hurricane season. A hundred percent. Yes, absolutely. And then, but now that I've come over to the Leo side, um, there's an, it's, a, it's a fantastic compliment. This, this sun synchronous orbit that we're in, basically the key thing there is we orbit around the poles 14 times a day uh, at about 500 miles up or 820 kilometers up. And we basically, uh, we, we, are, we go over the equator on the, uh, at the same time relative to the sun every day. So it's called sun synchronous. And by that, it's, it's helpful to provide our data that's used for modeling for numerical weather prediction, for other things that are really valuable. And being a global mission, we actually work with the Europeans and other um, nations to try to complement our data with other data sets to provide a complete set of um, observations for weather prediction. I, you know, as an engineer, I think of things like a big, 
you, you scientist types have these big black boxes called models. And, and so my objective is to pour the best quality data, the highest calibrated, best spatial quality, spectral and, and temporal quality data uh, into that black box. All right, we're talking with Tim Walsh, uh, JPSS Interim Director at NOAA. And there's something that I mentioned in the intro for this podcast. And I don't think, I mean, I I actually kind of get annoyed at it at times, but they're out there, there's these debates about which model is better, the European model, the American GFS model. And there are these model wars out there in the weather world, social media world. They're both world-class models. But one of the things that I don't think many people understand and is just how much satellite data is assimilated or goes into the initialization and sort of running of these weather models and the European model, which is slightly statistically better, but but not much different, um, has a different data assimilation scheme than the American GFS model. But the point that I'm making here, and I want you to sort of pick up on this, is that Neither of those models, it would be as good as they are without all of the satellite data going in. I remember a data denial experiment with Hurricane Sandy, where the European Center denied the model of the satellite data, a significant portion of it. And the forecast would have been completely wrong without that satellite data. So talk about how important, particularly data coming from your program, JPSS, uh, is to our weather forecast models. Yeah, I, I think you mentioned in the uh, the in, the intro that I think you said 90% of the data going into these models, uh, and I, I have I've always heard the statistic 85 to 95 90% of the data going into the models is from satellite uh, uh, observations, and and truly to get that modeling correct, you have to be global. You have to get vertical slices of the atmosphere called soundings. We call them soundings. It's basically moisture and temperature profiles of the atmosphere. And, and the higher quality and the faster uh, data you can get to those models, the better. Now, I do think that you know there is a healthy competition. I think it's collegial between the Europeans, the the Americans and others. And I, as an engineer, you know, I'm looking to get all of those models to put out better data. And, and as you know, well, I know some of the models are better for specific phenomenology and such uh, on the on the predictive side. But I think, um, you know, the better data we can provide, the, the, the tide will rise and, and float all the boats, so to speak. And, and so I, I really do think that um, the U.S., and, and this is where I'm ranging outside a little bit of my experience, but I know talking to our scientists, like you may know Jim Gleason here on, on JPSS, um, that basically by providing this better data, we're, we're getting and working with numerical weather prediction people at NOAA, we are getting better results. And I think over, specifically over the last four years, we had a, a previous acting director or administrator, Neil Jacobs over at, uh, at, at NOAA, who, who really made a concerted focus on trying to improve our algorithm uh, you know, development and, and modeling. So I hope to see the results uh, very quickly. We, we actually have two JPSS satellites in orbit, and uh, as of this November 1st, we'll have a third, and uh, we'll be augmenting that with other observations as well. So looking forward to seeing the improvement in the modeling. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Tim Walsh, who's the interim director as of the recording of this podcast, at least, of the Joint Polar Satellite System Program, JPSS. I mean, it is really the, the workhorse system of the nation's low Earth orbiting satellite program for weather. Uh, I remember, uh, again, thinking back to the NASA days, I remember there was a, a prototype of this satellite that went up, or I can't even remember what it what it was called. Actually, was it the Sumi MPP or something? It, it was. In fact, yeah. uh, Vern Sumi was a professor at University of Wisconsin who was kind of, I think they called the father of satellite. Oh, technology. yeah, absolutely. He's the yeah. We, yep. we all see him that way. <laughs> so I I actually think of when I came over to the JPSS side, I think of our lineage going all the way back, oddly enough, to 1960 when Tyros One was launched by NASA, and that was the first real true meteorological satellite looking at the Earth. And it was before I was alive, and probably many of us on this podcast were alive. But um, pretty impressive that we can trace our lineage back to 1960. And so the POSE satellites were a predecessor to JPSS, and they were through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and into the zero zeros. And then we launched SNPP. And SNPP has four tremendous new instruments on it. They were launched now 10 years ago. Um, and it was something called the VIRS or Visible Infrared um, Imaging Radiometer Suite. That's the primary imager. We have two different sounders, one that's microwave and one that's uh, um, uh, infrared. And then talk, we talk have- about, uh, Let me stop you there because yeah, this is a yeah, good yeah. opportunity to geek out for a second. Tell us why you would want to have, and I teach this in my satellite meteorology course at Georgia, but tell the listeners why you would want, and again, sounders, you keep hearing uh, Tim talking about sounders. Just think of a weather balloon. We send weather balloons up to get information vertically on the atmosphere, but now we can do it with satellites too. But tell us why we would want to have an instrument that does it in the infrared and the microwave. Absolutely. Um, well, the microwave and, and the microwave and infrared sounders actually do work as a complement to each other. The microwaves, um, uh, I guess, soundings can be are really valuable in that they can look through clouds. All right. So and, and the infrared um, ones complement them by uh, they're also hyperspectral. So you have a lot of data content that that complements the microwave sounding. So. I would say, you know, I, uh, coming over from the GO side, the, the imagery was king over on GOES. You know, it's really the, what people are, are comfortable seeing and look, used to looking at. But on the LEO side, we are really, although the VIRS is so critical as well, the imager, we are really a sounding driven program. And, and that's really where I think our value is to, to providing um, National Weather Service support. But yeah, those vertical um, uh, soundings, the, the temperature and, and moisture um, humidity or humidity profiles of the sound of the um, global coverage are really critical to our modeling. Now, I just want to get into a little inside the ballpark in terms of your GOES days. You, know, you yeah. I believe, were the GOES R flight program director. Is that correct? I, I was I was acting in that role, but most of my experience was on the spacecraft side and the flight project. I those. see. So I, I worked there for a number of years, uh, getting those satellites ready for launch. Well, the, the reason I wanted at least, uh, we'll, we'll get back to JPSS, but I just wanted to expose the listeners to the fact that we, you, you talked about how we've transitioned from POSE to the JPSS era. Uh, the, the geosynchronous satellite uh, program at the, in the U.S. has transitioned as well. Talk about how we sort of went from sort of the previous GOES era to sort of the GOES R and beyond era. Absolutely. Um, I, I have to, if I could go back just a little bit further, back when I joined the GOES program in 1991, 
um, we had spinning satellites. And so the satellite literally was spin stabilized. That's how it kept its attitude stable in orbit. And by that, the imager only saw the Earth a very small portion of the whole um, time on orbit. And so when I, in 1994, when I, we, we launched GOES-8, that was the first three-axis stabilized satellite where we were looking at the Earth all the time. And so we could image a full Western hemisphere like once every 30 minutes or so. And so for GOES-R, we, we wanted to increase the spatial resolution of the data for the imager. We wanted to increase the temporal rate, which in other words, get a, a a Western hemispheric view once every, say, 10 minutes, or we could go even faster than that. And then we wanted to increase the spectral content or get better infrared visible wavelengths. And so um, when we went from the, what I call the, we went from spinners to, to, to three axis stabilized, and then we really went a step up with the improvement of our instruments with GOES-R. The other thing we did is we moved from this is really kind of a little bit geeking out, but I oh, apologize. We love that. No, we, we love it. This is weather geeks. Don't apologize for anything. <laughs> so the, the older, uh, the first generation of, of 3X stabilized spacecraft used Earth sensors to look at the Earth. And basically, you're using the Earth sensor, which is looking at the atmosphere, the swath of the Earth. Um, and at the limb, you're looking at the atmosphere. And so the very weather phenomenons or phenomenology that we're looking at measuring could actually be an error in terms of your, your attitude control. And so we went to stellar or star tracker um, navigation with the next generation of satellites. And so now we can use celestial navigation, which is fairly common now, but that was a big step up in terms of our holding our spacecraft steady. And so when we want to have an imager um, take a, a series of images that can be a video, um, you want them to be ultra steady from image to image so that the people that are tracking a storm can really follow it, whether you're looking at tornadoes in the Midwest or, or a hurricane in, this, in the Atlantic or Pacific. So that's where I, I saw the biggest improvements is both the performance of the instruments, but also the stability of the platforms. Yeah, it's amazing. I, again, I, I will actually be teaching my satellite meteorology class this fall at the University of Georgia. And, you know, I talk quite a bit about the the increased the capabilities of the instruments, the various sector scans and mesoscale scans that you can do, the rapid rim, uh, scans that you can do to look at things like developing severe weather or, or the really fine structure in the eye wall of a hurricane, for example, that you can get with. And also even just some of the new instruments on board, like the geostationary line. Lightning or lightning map or the GLM, which is actually I have a, a graduate student of mine working on right now. So uh, I, I just want to emphasize to those listening out here how important both the JPSS program and uh, the Emerging GOES program is. And just to be clear, this is the U.S.-based program there. Talk to us a little bit, Tim, about sort of programmatically, you, you alluded to this earlier, but programmatically how other countries also have weather satellite programs and how we all work together. Sure. Um, you think of it from the geo side. We have um, the Europeans on the on to the the east of us, and there's a couple, there's an organization called UMETSAT, which is basically the European version of NOAA. Um, it's astounding to me that they actually have 30 nation states that contribute to that to that organization, which to me is a, a tremendous management challenge in itself. But they get really, they do some amazing work, and they have a complement to our geostationary spacecraft. And on the sun synchronous side, the LEO side. Think of it as slices of orbits as various slices. We call them orbital planes. And so the U.S. has a commitment to, to look at the sun, uh, to look at the Earth at a specific sun synchronous orbit. We call it an early afternoon orbit. The the uh, Europeans have with an, an AM or late AM orbit. So we think of it as a different slice of the atmosphere. 
And what we do is we try to get as many of these spatially distributed um, orbital planes so that we can get um, a, a wider array of observations for our modeling. But the Europeans do, from the LEO side, we are completely in sync with them because we have specific orbits that we complement. And then our geo data is, you can think of it as being stitched together from the GOES data all the way to the Europeans. And then on the uh, Western side, of course, the Japanese have the, actually the same instruments that we fly on the GOES spacecraft are flown on the Japanese spacecraft. And so that's really, really good in terms of um, you know, co-registering their, their data to ours. Um, and then, so I, I think you, the, the other thing about the LEO side is that we work with DOD, we work with uh, Japan, India, uh, and Europe, uh, all the European nations that are contribute to UMETSAT. So it's very much an international program. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard geeking out today with Tim Walsh from the NOAA's JPSS program. And this is just an exciting time for satellites. We had the uh, GOES-18 that was, I guess, launched back in March of this year. Uh, again, remind us of what's coming down the road in terms of the, the low Earth orbiting program. Do, now you, I think you mentioned that there is an, another launch forthcoming. Uh, tell us about that and even beyond that. Correct. Uh, in JPSS-2 is our next launch, and that's on November 1st. It will be launched from the west coast of the United States at uh, Vandenberg uh, Space Force Base, which is a couple hours north of L.A. Um, we're very excited about that. That is a clone of the two satellites we have in orbit. Um, uh, what we're doing in concert with that is we're starting something that's pretty exciting, Dr. Shepard. We're, we're working on, um, there's an ATMS, our Advanced Technology Microwave Sounder. Um, we have an engineering development unit that we've we've qualify for flight, or we will refurb for flight. And we're gonna launch that on a small sat, and we're gonna put it in an orbit that is currently underserved in terms of our observations. So um, there's an orbit, um, think of it as where the day-night um, um, transition area is on the Earth. It's called the Terminator orbit. And, and we don't really have a lot of sounding data that's consistent from there. So that's not our objective, but we're gonna put the satellite there and it will, I'm sure our scientists will be very happy, but more importantly, we're gonna to try to prove out that we can take an instrument, uh, work with a commercial satellite provider and work with a, a, a new launch vehicle and get things up on a much shorter timescale. Like for instance, the GO satellites and JPS satellites for, for the, all the right reasons, took a long time to develop. They're big satellites, they have multiple you know, contractors providing instruments. What we wanna do is take advantage of some of the things we've seen in the commercial sector and, and try to jumpstart um, how we could get new instruments on orbit quicker. Uh, in this case, we're not doing a new instrument, but we're trying to prove the concept so that we can get a new next generation microwave sounder or infrared sounder or imager in orbit faster. I know there's a quite a bit of movement in that. Unfortunately, we just had a law. No, no, no. NASA recently was trying to launch a couple of CubeSats for part of its Tropics mission, but there were some problems on launch. Um, but 
you mentioned this. There's risk uh, with these sort of smaller CubeSat, small sets. I know there are various companies uh, out there uh, that are sort of dabbling in this space now. There's quite a few. Uh, you know, I'm, I've been uh, sort of familiar with uh, one particular company, Tomorrow.io, uh, but there are many others as well uh, that are in this space. Um, do you foresee this as the next sort of next? step forward in low earth orbiting or, or or what do you see as the next great step forward in in this field i i do first of all i'm a big fan of the tropics mission uh, we were really pulling for um the mit lincoln labs uh, instruments to go up into orbit and and they do have uh, a couple other opportunities they are a great complement to our data from our advanced technology microwave sounder having said that we do realize and agree that when you use a new launch vehicle um, you could have a, a greater possibility of failure. I mean, GOES and JPSS are being launched on the Atlas uh, launch vehicle. It's a tried and true launch vehicle that has a long track record of success. We've been encouraged, uh, Dr. Shepard, to take a little bit more risk. Um, we have to be careful though, because we're using, you know, we're, we're using taxpayer money. So we are, we very much have to show that if there is risk that it's acceptable. Um, uh, so, it's, it's a little different than the private sector where you you have a, a business model and you may like say for, um, uh, this is not really comparable to our mission, but Starlink could afford to lose a, a number of satellites, uh, but uh, they they know that they're launching enough to make it, to, to achieve their objectives. For us, so we're gonna, we're gonna be trying to get smaller. Uh, we will hopefully um, get more sounding observations in orbit. By doing that, we hope to create simpler instruments, uh, smaller spacecraft, smaller sizes of budgets in, in for permission so that would maybe uh, allow and and seeing the advances that we're seeing in the commercial sector you know hopefully allow us to take on more risk in terms of i shouldn't say it necessarily is more risk but less government oversight and more government insight to the mission and uh, hopefully we'll see the reliability of what we're seeing today on jpss now, you are an engineer. I mentioned this earlier when we started the podcast, but you're very much immersed in the weather community. Uh, as we go forward, I mean, if you had a magic wand, I mean, what what do you foresee as being the need from an engineering perspective, a resolution perspective, an orbit perspective, satellite meteorology perspective? What What do we need from your vantage point in the next 20 years to take even a further step forward in our weather forecasting improvements? It's a very timely question because right now we're going through architectural studies for um, what we call our new LEO system. And that is really trying to optimize how many orbits, how many missions, how many different types of observations we need. And so if I were to wave my magic wand, it would be to, um, can, can we define, um, can we work with the private sector? And I think, I know we can, to, to take advantage of some of the advances they've done in the large constellations, smaller satellites um, sector or, or um, architectures recently. But the other thing that I might add is that I'm used to on the geo side getting data all the time quickly. On the LEO side, we take our data twice in orbit um, and an orbit is roughly 90 minutes, so every 45 minutes. Another area that I could see us improving on is getting data at a, at a much, much faster rate. You could do that in a number of different ways. You could put a bunch of ground stations down or you can have satellite to satellite communications. And so with a larger constellation, again, I'm just dreaming here, you know, you could possibly have uh, satellite crosslink data and get LEO data on a latency that approaches that of GEO. And now that's a dream, but I, I do think that that's something that's 
it's worth dreaming about. Oh, absolutely. You know, I've often talked about the, you know, it's a dream too of a, you know, a radar in a geosynchronous orbit, like a system like we have on trim or GPM. I know power and mass constraints are pretty uh, tough for that right now, but it's, uh, it's something that comes up from time to time. And I remember it when I was at Goddard as well. One last question I want to ask you, and it has nothing to do with what we're talking about. I like to ask this from time to time. When you're not thinking about satellites and weather, what's one thing, where, where would we find you or what would you uh, be doing when you're in your off time? What's, what's something that might surprise people about what you like to do? You know, it, it's um, it, it's still kind of geeky, but I have to admit that I'm really intrigued by where we might go in terms of going to Mars, for instance, you know, or being an extraplanetary species. You know, I, I don't know where we're going to go, but hopefully in my lifetime, you know, we'll see something go there. Um, I have a lot of other interests that are external to work, but I mean, I, I think, I mean, really, I'm really intrigued. It's very exciting to see what people are doing, um, um, whether it's the Starship potential launch coming up or, or whatever. So it's, it's just fun to see people expand the boundaries of what we can do here. Yeah, I agree. I get to geek out a little bit on that, too, because I'm on the uh, Space Studies Board for the National Academies of Sciences. So we get briefed on all these really neat things. And we had our, our meeting recently and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is so amazing. Wow, we're, we're really coming up against it. Tim, is there anywhere you would recommend if people want to know more about the JPSS program or U.S. satellite program on the web or in social oh, media? I where would you absolutely um, a Noah Nesdis or NESDIS? That's no, it sounds like a mouthful, but um, Nesdis is basically the satellite organization for NOAA. But if you search on NOAA and JPSS, it'll just go right to the to the website. A lot of good information there. We have a great uh, you know social media presence as well. Our comms group, as as you know. Um, Dr. Shepard at Goddard, they do things really well in terms of comms. And so we're going to be rolling out a lot of things as we get closer to launch. So please stay tuned. Yeah, I, I highly recommend those sites as well. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. There's no geek of the week today, but I'm going to take a host privilege and just further amplify uh, Dr. Vern Sumi, uh, who Tim mentioned earlier. Um, we probably or we might not even be sitting here talking about some of these things if it was not for the pioneering efforts of Vern Sumi up at um, University of Wisconsin and, and throughout his career elsewhere as well. I first learned about him through my colleague, Dr. Eric Smith, one of my satellite meteorology professors at Florida State. So uh, not our geek of the week, but since we're talking satellite meteorology today, just wanted to lift up uh, Vern Sumi in that regard. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll talk to you next time on Weather Geeks. Mm -hmm.